The world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and acclaimed author of Take Control of Your Life. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inspire Us. Today's episode is about preventing suicide. I have Dr. Mark Golston joining us, who will be talking about how he has successfully treated his patients, his suicidal patients, with the technique he calls surgical empathy. Without any further delay, I'd love to introduce you to Dr. Mark Golston. Hello, Mark, and welcome to Inspire Us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Mark, after I read your impressive biography and knowing everything that you've done, I couldn't help but reach out to you and ask you to be part of this because we come from similar backgrounds. I am a former hostage negotiator. You are a former hostage negotiator trainer with the FBI. I know a couple of, uh, of FBI negotiators that I keep in touch with re regularly. And I also see that you're, you're an expert on so many different topics, including, including depression, suicide. And we're going through some really difficult times, as, as we all know. It's been over a year with COVID-19, and a lot of people are still suffering. I wanted to ask you, from your point of view as an expert, what are some of the signs that we could be aware of uh, in other people, or maybe even our, in ourselves, that we need help and that somebody needs to reach out to us or what we can do to actually take care of them and ourselves? Well, I think the signs are changes in behavior, changes in attitude. People seem to be more withdrawn. They seem to be more negative. They seem to be more pessimistic. Uh, you don't see as, you, they're not quick to smile about many things. And you can feel sort of an energy where they're pulling away. Uh, and in fact, you know, one of my great passions is preventing suicide, especially suicide in teenagers who have been locked down and locked in. And, and there's something I'd like to bring up because I, I have a book out called Why Cope When You Can Heal, which is about how do you help people heal from trauma, not just recover from it. And part of what we share in that is my experience as a suicide prevention uh, specializing psychiatrist, where for 25 years, none of my patients died by suicide. Mm. And I've been trying to figure out what it is that I did that caused that. And in the book, Why Cope When You Can Heal, we've actually named it, and we call it surgical empathy. Surgical empathy. And if you think of someone who's feeling really, really hopeless, and it won't go away, and it's painful, and unless you've been suicidal or had those thoughts, you won't understand this. But if you have been, you'll understand it. Death is compassionate and empathic to hopelessness. Death basically says, you know, if it gets really bad, I'll take your pain away. But as one of my mentors, Dr. Ed Schneidman, who was the, the possibly the top pioneer in the field of suicide prevention, 
as he used to say, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, but you can have a mindset where you don't think it's temporary. But the way it works is if suicide feels your pain and gives you a way out of it, what I think I learned and did with my patients is they felt felt by me. And feeling felt by another person is different than feeling understood. Feeling understood, there's a gap. And a lot of times, if you're really closed down and you're stuck, you can't reach out to where they're at. They have to come in where you're at. So can I share a story that'll probably illustrate this better than anything I could say? Would you please? Yes. So uh, early in my practice, and Dr. Schneidman was a, a main referrer. He would refer me still suicidal patients who had to be discharged from the hospital. They weren't acutely suicidal, uh, but you couldn't keep them there forever. And But that was still part of who they were. And there was one patient that I'll call Nancy, who I was seeing for six months. She'd made three or four suicide attempts before I started seeing her. And she'd been in the hospital two to three months every time for several years. Way back then, you could stay in the hospital that long. And I was seeing her, and I didn't think she was getting any better, except that was the longest she'd gone without an attempt. And when she would come in, she wouldn't really make eye contact. She wasn't catatonic, but if you're me and I'm you, uh, uh, she, she'd be looking like 30 degrees to the left or the right. And so one Monday, I had just finished moonlighting at a hospital uh, a psychiatric hospital where I covered for the doctors. And sometimes when you're doing that, you, you can be up 24 hours covering, doing admissions and things like that. And on, on a particular Monday morning, I came in and there was Nancy looking to the left of me. And as she was looking at me and I looked out at her, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking out at a room that's black and white and I start to feel chills. And I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. Now I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a medical doctor, so I did a neurologic exam on myself and I'm tapping my knees and I'm looking at my fingers and whatever, because I wanted to see if I had a stroke or seizure and, and I realized I'm all here. But because I was sleep deprived, your mind can play tricks on you. And I had this crazy, crazy idea that I was looking out at the world through her eyes. That's what it felt like in those lifeless eyes. And because I was sleep deprived, this is what I said to her that I probably wouldn't have said uh, if I wasn't sleep deprived. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad and I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to, to get out of the pain. And I thought, I just blew it. I just gave her permission. Uh, and she looked at me probably for the first time. And she not only looked at me, she looked right into my eyes. And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding I'm overdue. And I said, Nancy, what are you thinking? And she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled. And then I said to her while I still had her, uh, my eyes on her eyes, like I have them on yours, I said, Nancy, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you any treatment 
that you've been on before and that probably hasn't worked that well, uh, unless you ask me to give you treatment, would that be okay? And Paul, she's looking at me with a look that says, keep talking, I am intrigued. And I leaned into her like I'm leaning into your eyes and I said, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. I'm gonna find you wherever you are and I'm gonna keep you company there because you've been there alone too many times at three in the morning. Would that be okay? And then she started to cry and smile. So that's an example of surgical empathy. Mark, and you've, sorry, I'm just gonna jump in there uh, and say that you're giving me goosebumps just by telling me that story. What, what else happened in that moment? What else was said? Uh, well, well, what happened is she, she, uh, she grabbed onto that like a lifeline. But I want to share a nuance with you, hmm. because here's the difference between clinical empathy and surgical empathy. So I want you to imagine, Paul, I don't want to you know, know what your past has been, but I want you to imagine that you're feeling really depressed. You're really down. Mm -hmm. And I want you to imagine that if you come in, and I'm being professional and responsible, but I'm checking boxes. I have to follow a protocol. And if I say, have you been depressed? And you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not here because I'm happy. <laughs> and you say, yes. And I'd say, how long have you been depressed? And you tell me, uh, have you had negative thoughts? Well, you don't exactly have positive thoughts. You don't say that, yes. Uh, uh, do you ever have thoughts where you might want to end it? Yes. So that's professional, that's responsible, that's easy to record in the electronic uh, record. That's clinical empathy. Here's surgical empathy. You come in, I, we make eye contact and see how it feels differently. You've been depressed recently, haven't you? Yeah. Like really depressed. Uh huh. Like scary depressed. And you've had moments when you didn't know how you're going to make it through the next hour. Is that true? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, and it's been pretty dicey. You were thinking about, I can't take it anymore. I just want it to go away. Is any of that true? Uh-huh. Can you take me to the last time you felt that? And you'll say, huh? It was in the middle of the night where you couldn't get back to sleep and you didn't know how you were going to make it through the rest of the night. Yeah. Paul, tell me about that. And as you say it to me so clearly, and you talk about, well, you know, I couldn't get back to sleep. I didn't know whether to put my fist through the wall or my head through the wall. And then what happened? But as you tell it to me so clearly that I can see it, you're re-feeling it, but you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And so I, we call it surgical empathy because it's like draining pus out of an abscess of hopelessness. But can you feel the difference between that and my checking boxes? Oh, I certainly can. 
I certainly can. And it works in, in, in uh, police work, any kind of work. Exactly. When you connect, it's about connection. It's not about wearing the white jacket. It's about taking the white jacket off and connecting with the human being in front of you. Would I be yeah, correct? In fact, absolutely. In fact, in my book, Just Listen, uh, one of the early chapters is about uh, someone who took uh, some of my training and, and it's been so long since I wrote the book, but, uh, and there's something that we, we call uh, a, a sort of a paradoxical uh, uh, intervention. And, and so if you've been in these situations, you know, there's a lead negotiator and they're, they're being fed information on the perpetrator or the person who's suicidal. And so, uh, so I'm not giving you all the details of it, uh, but what the lead negotiator is told to say to the person is, um, uh, and, and this wouldn't work, by the way, with someone who's like a terrorist. This is, this is mainly for someone who's emotionally distraught. And what you uh, would say to this, that person is, uh, uh, I'll bet you sometimes feel that nobody knows what it's like uh, to feel what you're feeling right now. Is that true? Because you're giving them words and what there's a part of them that's feeling nobody knows what I feel like and nobody gives a F. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to draw that out. And in this case, that's exactly what the person said. Yeah, nobody knows what it's like to feel this way. And then again, given the data, the next question was, and I'll bet you sometimes feel that uh, nobody knows what it's like to wake up in the morning and think that only bad things can happen to you. Is that true? And then he says that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I'll bet nobody knows what it's like to feel like you're cornered and there's no way out other than this. So I'm giving you an idea, but can you see by being paradoxical and they're saying, yes, nobody knows. Yes, well, the point is, you know. And so you're mirroring them in a paradoxical, ironic way. And then you build on that conversation towards you. And when you do it and you're fortunate and it works, they're gonna, they're gonna uh, and the anecdote was someone uh, barricaded in their car and uh, like a big department store parking lot. And, you know, people were drawn in the SWAT team because, you know, if he had taken any uh, movement to hurt someone else, you know, they were trained to take them out. So, but, but can you picture that emotionally that as you're engaged in that conversation, he's being drawn into it away from his agitation? I certainly can because I've had a few of those conversations as a former hostage negotiator. And uh, yes, you're absolutely right to use that approach opens the gates of communication and a person who is in distress when they are heard and really feel like you are stepping into their shoes and you're giving them permission to speak their truth um, are more likely to, to listen, to speak and to cooperate. How powerful is that? Doctor, that's so powerful. I see that one of your books is just listen and it really is about active listening, is it not? Uh, absolutely. Just Listen is about, uh, and it's in 27 languages, 
this won't surprise you. I speak on it around the world. And I guess I can use this as a sort of bad humor, but I can't get arrested in America about it. Meaning, <laughs> meaning Americans want to be listened to. And, but I'll share you the latest update. And, and, uh, and this, is, this might be the next book I would write beyond listening. So I spoke in Moscow a little over a year ago with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And, and, and they had me be there because five of my nine books are bestsellers in Russia. And so my presentation to a thousand Russian managers and leaders of organizations and companies, the title was Change Everything You Know About Communication. <laughs> and so... Uh, and there's actually some video clips of me doing it on YouTube, but uh, if you, I, so I'm a, right now, I'm going to change everything you know about communication, Paul, and your listeners. Are, are you game? I'm game. I'm interested to see where this goes because I know quite a bit about it, but go ahead. Yes, please do. And you know, I'm always open to hearing new information because I think that that's how we truly grow. And if we can take anything from, from a podcast or, or a conversation that makes us better at, at listening or speaking, I'm all for it. So please, Mark. So here goes. All right. If I focus on this is what I said to the audience, but I'm going to do it with you. You get it. If I focus on what you're listening to, you know, you're asking me really good, responsible questions that your listeners would be curious about. And if I give bullet points and useful information, people will check the boxes and say, oh, that, that's pretty neat. I think I can use that. And, and we'll have a, you know, an informative, but largely transactional conversation if I focus on what you're listening to. But if instead I now put on my FM NPR voice and I focus on what you're listening for and you haven't told me what it is, but if I get it right, you'll give me everything. Mm -hmm. So let, let me, so tell me how this lands. Yep. So the listening to part of you is, you know, asking me questions, I'm checking boxes. But is this what you might be listening for? So I'll be you. So you're saying to me, Mark, I'm listening for information that will immediately help my listeners have better lives, get through difficult times. And that's something that is doable by them immediately. And I'm listening for that because the trust and confidence and respect of my listeners I want to honor. In fact, I need to honor it. The last thing I would ever want to do would be to disappoint them and cause them to not trust, have confidence, and respect me. And also what I'm listening for, Mark, is you may have written some great books, but if you're someone who's written books, but you're basically a stiff as a guest, meaning you're so gobbledygook, you're so... <laughs> so unusable i'm listening for something that i'm going to have to protect my listeners from and then have to go back to you and say Geez, i hate to say this to you but you know we couldn't use the podcast and you're laughing because you've been there uh-huh i have <laughs> so is that what you're listening for paul that is only part of it mark because i truly am um i'm listening just for something 
I mean, let me rephrase this. I'm listening for the truth. And you said it so well, yet I'm not putting too much weight on what my listeners may be thinking about me because this is not about me. I'm only here, I'm a voice, and, and I want to make it about you. You're the expert in the room, and I'm listening for what you, uh, what your truth is and, and your experience and how you deliver that to your audience. Your audience is my audience today. And so really, I, I, I make it about you. Uh, I, I'm going to push back. Okay. Because you're not in touch with your inner self, Paul. What you're listening for is, uh, is can I trust this guy? Uh, does it ring true what he's saying? Because I'm listening for his truth in service of my audience. So yes, you're listening for what I have to say, and you're here uh, trying to give me the chance to say it. But and I could be wrong, but I think you're listening for that in service of providing value to your audience because their trust and belief in you is important. Mm -hmm. So would you agree to that or am I off? You certainly are. Yeah. What, what, what else should I be listening for then, Mark? Well, no, I think we're, we're good to go. But the point is, what I'm <laughs> saying to you and the listeners, if you can pause and once a day uh, with an intentional conversation, could be someone in your family, could be someone in business, if you can let go of your agenda, if you can let go of anything you're trying to prove or persuade, and you're just curious about what they're listening for, just being curious about what they're listening for will cause them to lean in because it means you're valuing what they're saying. In fact, I come up with acronyms and here is an acronym to build the presence muscle. And if you practice this every day in at least one conversation for a week, it will change your presence uh, to a level that it's never been. And the acronym is what we call the HUVA technique, H-U-V-A. What does that mean? Is it means that there's a conversation coming up and at the end of the conversation, and your intention is to be present. What does that mean? That could be a, a client, a customer, someone in your family. What it means is that from their point of view, they felt heard out by you, they felt understood by you, they felt valued by you, and they felt that you added value to what they had to say. Mm. And the way you demonstrate that you've heard them out is you don't interrupt them to one-up them or Shanghai it or, or, or fulfill your agenda. So they feel heard out. The way you demonstrate that you understand them is you ask them to elaborate on something. So you've already done that with me. Uh, and so you say, say that again, or, or what do you mean by that? Could you go into that? Mm -hmm. so that means you're seeking to understand. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they feel valued uh, by that because you, you might say in a genuine way, uh, you know that thing you just shared or what you're talking about, I can already see how that could help people's lives. I, I, in fact, I took notes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and then adding value, uh, you might say something, uh, you don't have to, you could say, you know, uh, have, have you ever thought of what you're doing, you know, taking it in other directions that would truly, you know, value what you had to say? Mm -hmm. And I think if you do this intentionally, what'll happen is they will lean, they will cave into you. And, and, here's, and here's the advice. You can't beat up on yourself when you try the Hoover technique and, and find yourself lacking in either hearing them out, understanding them, valuing them, or adding value. Because it doesn't come naturally, but you can build the muscle. And when you build the muscle, what's going to happen is you're going to notice people coming towards you as opposed to their nodding and smiling politely. And they're not saying yes. What they're saying is, I've heard enough already. I'm just being polite. Right. <laughs> okay. Oh, my. I love that. H-U-V-A. So true. Mark, uh, I, I mentioned your book, Just Listen, because I just released my third book, and it's called Just Ask. And when you put those two components, I'd love to put your book beside my book, just listen, just ask. Because when we ask those clarifying questions and when we do mirror the other individual and we do ask, hey, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is this, it does bring that human connection uh, so much closer. And what you've given us today, Mark, are such valuable tools and halfway through our conversation, you were so eloquent in the way that you put it. Are you looking for the value? Are you looking for this? Are you looking for that? My audience is their, their cup of understanding has been filled today uh, because communication, especially in these times, and I shouldn't say especially in these times, and please, I'll strike that especially out in any time to understand another human being and to really listen to another human being gives them an opportunity to step forward. And if anything, you pointed out something very important earlier on. It's not that people want to kill themselves. It's just that they cannot stand living in that state that they're in. And when you used this surgical empathy to really get into mirroring, you stepped in to your patient's shoes and you asked those questions and you got that, you got that eye, you got them to look at you in the eyes instead of looking to your left or looking to your right. And that dark moment that you explained in that room because you were sleep deprived may have been something greater than you, you, you could even understand today. That was, that was, I think, a moment of brilliance, a moment of, wow, I get it now. So you have added so much value to our show here today. In parting, um, I, wanted, I want to ask you, how people could get a hold of you, where they could buy your book. But I also want to ask you if you could leave us with one or two additional little you know, tips of gold that you've already given us that will help people get through this difficult time. Well, let me hit you with the tips first, because you and I are going to save some lives today. Uh, so here's another example of surgical empathy. Uh, also, I would like your listeners to check out teen mental health webinar. It's a video that a, a friend of mine, his 14-year-old son died by suicide a couple of years ago, and he reached out to me afterwards. And it has a video of him speaking to 12 male founders about how it was his fault 
he believed that his son uh, killed himself because he said, I was the dad. I, gave, I give solutions. I don't share my own fears of vulnerability. And I made it difficult for him to open up to me because I always gave him a solution. And when he died, one of his passcodes, one of his uh, suicide notes was his passcodes and he'd been looking for ways to kill himself for months. Mm. And so here's a way to reach someone you're worried about. And he and Jason Reed gave me this insight. When you say to someone like a spouse or your uh, teenager, how are you doing? And they say, great, they're usually good. But when they say, I'm fine, they're not. When they say, I'm fine, what they're usually saying is, leave me alone. And so here's an example of surgical empathy. You can ask them, how are you doing? And they give you the I'm fine response. And you could say, I know you're fine, but I'm your mom, I'm your dad, or I'm your husband, I'm your wife. I got a few questions, just, just give me your best answer. At its absolute worst, how awful are you capable of feeling? They're going to go, what? Mm -hmm. At its worst point, how awful are you capable of feeling? And they're going to say, pretty awful, pretty awful, or very awful. Okay, okay already, very awful. This is the surgical empathy you're going on. And when you're feeling that way, how alone are you capable of feeling? Pretty alone. Pretty alone or all alone? Okay, okay, all alone. Take me to the last time you felt that. What? Yeah, take me to the last time you felt that. And then when they talk about 2.30 in the morning where they felt like uh, punching a hole in the wall, What's interesting is when they describe it so clearly that you can see it, they refeel it, but they're not feeling it alone. And then after they say that, what you say to that kid is, uh, uh, I got a favor to ask you. And they're gonna say, what? Uh, whenever you feel that, I want you to do whatever it takes to get your mom or your dad and my attention because we're preoccupied and there is nothing more important than us going to where you're at when you're alone there. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. So do you follow how that might open up the conversation? Uh, so I just wanted to leave that tip because if you're listening in, it might come in handy. Thank you so much, Mark. Now, how can people reach you? So uh, I have bloggeria, which means I, uh, I'll tell you, I had a mentor named Warren Bennis and a big leadership guy. And when I turned 60, I'm in, I'm in my early 70s, but when I turned 60, I said, Warren, I think my life's over. It's all, all these younger people. <laughs> he, said, he said, Mark, when I was in my 70s, it was my best decade because, I was, because everything I'd watched and learned started to make sense. And, you know, and I didn't particularly care if I offended people. I didn't go out of my way to do it. <laughs> But, you know, I was just connecting things, and that's what's happening to me. So if you go to markgoulston.com, markgoulston.com, you'll see uh, what I'm up to. Also, I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call, where I interview uh, influencers and thought leaders. And it's all about what, do you, what matters most to you that you think will matter most to you at the end of your life. And what were the wake up calls that led you there? And I've had Larry King on, Norman Lear, uh, Secretary David Shulkin from the VA, Tom Steyer ran for president. Um, I'm due to have Jordan Peterson on. 
So I get some pretty interesting guests and they all open up. And then also I do a LinkedIn live show called No Strings Attached, where my guests and I give away tips that are immediately usable and there's no strings attached. You want to make a course, you want to, you want to monetize them. You don't owe my guests or me anything. And that's why it's called No Strings Attached. Thank you, Mark. I am going to put all those links in the show notes. And for everyone who is listening to this, I am so pleased that Dr. Mark came on to the show today and he has he has left, left us with such great value. And be aware, uh, it is about listening. It is about being that surgeon. It is about making those inquiries and being having exploratory dialogue with the people that you love, because sometimes you don't ask the right questions. Dr. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I am so glad that we connected and I'm going to, uh, to follow you. And uh, yeah, thank you again. Well, thank, I, I hope I nailed what you were listening for or else we got to redo it. Oh, you know what? I nailed it, but I'd love to redo it just to have you back on for a second show, which uh, I'm thinking of because you are just a world of knowledge. And I thank you for that. It's, it's been a great show and you've made it. So thank you very, very much for your time and for all your expertise today, because I think we are saving lives and you brought that into the show today. Thank you. Well, thank you. There's not, there's nothing better. I've heard there's a story, uh, I think it was the end of Schindler's List that said, whoever saves one life saves the world. So um, that's my mission. That's a beautiful parting note. Thank you, doctor. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient. 